Good morning, ladies. Oh, that praise time and that music was so beautiful. I just love that. I don't want to, I want to go out and keep singing. Lift your name on high. What a beautiful, beautiful song to be reminded of. You know, I'm very happy to be here today. There is nothing sweeter than studying the Word of God. And I hope that you feel like that as well. And it's even sweeter when we're studying it with other women. Psalm 119, 103 says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I hope that for you, that the Word of God is sweet as honey to you. You know, we study the Word not to put knowledge up here, but for our heart, that it would be drawn closer to God And that, as that happens, that our hearts would be full to overflowing for love for our fellow man. Have you ever known anyone that was larger than life? My dad was that to me. Now, that's not unusual. Many girls, little girls, probably think that of their dad. But I thought that of my dad his entire life. He had big visions in his company. He was very charismatic and had many friends. And he liked to do things in a big way. And he loved to fish. And he liked to catch big fish. So one summer, uh, I was in college, home for the summer. I went with my dad on a fishing tournament on our boat. And it was for big billfish. Now, it was in the Atlantic. And the last day of the fishing tournament, it was about 4 in the afternoon. The tournament would be over at 6. My dad hooked in to a big blue marlin. I don't know if you know what that is, but it's blue, and it has a long bill, and it was over 300 pounds. And as it took out the line, they usually jump out of the water to try to shake the hook free, and that's what this blue marlin did way out there, and you could tell how big it was, the biggest fish I'd ever seen uh, in person like that. My dad began to reel and reel this fish, and the time passed, and hour after hour passed, and pretty soon it was 6 o'clock, and the tournament was over, and all the other boats went in, but according to tournament rules, you could keep fighting, keep drawing in the fish you had on the line, so my dad kept doing that. Pretty soon, the sun went down, the stars came out, it was dark, five hours have gone by, we're standing there with big spotlights on the line because you want the fishing line to be right directly at the back of the boat. And you have a captain that's always turning the boat to make sure the line is back there. Now, no one could relieve my dad of the fishing rod, and so we'd hold water up to his mouth. And I'd say, are you okay? Can you do this? And he'd say, I can keep going. And he kept reeling in the fish. And just as it would come up out, zzz, you'd hear the line, and the fish would go out again. Finally, after five hours... My dad said, I can tell the fish is getting tired. And with one last burst of energy, he reeled and reeled. And the fish came up. And as it got almost up to the surface of the water, I don't know if it saw the lights, if it saw the back of the boat, or if it was just a tricky blue marlin, but it dove straight down to the bottom. And as it did, the line came back to the back of the boat. It went across, and just like that, it snapped on the metal facing. Just like that, the fish was free. A big groan went up from everyone on the boat, and as we went back to the dock, all of the other fishermen and people in the tournament were standing there. They had been on their radios, as fishermen do. They knew the whole story, and they began to clap for my dad. But I was so sad it didn't make any difference. It was such a disappointment to me. And so I said to my dad, are you so, so disappointed that you didn't catch that fish? And I'll never forget this. With a big smile, he laughed. And he said, it's okay. Sometimes the fish wins. 
That was a pretty larger-than-life attitude for me to see in my dad, who had known defeat. Sometimes the fish wins. Larger-than-life, that is how I would describe the Apostle Paul. Paul, who did everything full out. Nothing was halfway with Paul. Paul, who brought the good news to the Gentile world. Paul made known Christ with unmistakable clarity year after year. Some will say, as in Dr. Meyer's Bible handbook, that there is no doubt that Paul holds the most important place of any man in the New Testament. Now, maybe that could be debated, but we all can pretty much agree that Paul is larger than life. He traveled thousands and thousands of miles on his missionary journeys, and that was no mean feat in those days. He wrote one-third of the New Testament, much more than any other writer that contributed to the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 11 also tells us that he suffered a great deal of hardship. He was beaten with rods, he was stoned, he was shipwrecked, he was flogged, he was starved, he was left half-naked and cold. He was in danger more times than he wasn't. In his book, um, All the Apostles of the Bible, Herbert Lockyer says this about Paul. No figure in church history stands as high or has had such far-reaching influence as this apostle to the non-Jewish world. It was to Paul that Christ entrusted the doctrine of the church. And yet his gospel message Jesus loves you and died for you and rose again that you might have life with him and life eternal. Paul always tells that simply and boldly and clearly. Jesus loves you and died for you. We could not have a study of those who followed Jesus without including Paul, larger than life, the extraordinary apostle Paul. Today I'm going to give you some background info on Paul. Um, You've looked at a lot of this in your homework questions. And then next week, Lynn Kitchens is going to come, and we're going to begin a six-week look at the book of Galatians. This is Paul's first letter that he wrote. And then after that, at the end of the semester, Shelley Davis is going to come, and she's going to talk about 2 Timothy, the last letter that Paul wrote. And in between, we have two more women. We can't leave out the women. Uh, On your outline, I think you have a map, and you see that um, where Tarsus is. Paul was born in Tarsus in Cilicia. And we have a picture of Paul up there. This is on the road to Damascus that we're going to be looking at in just a minute. Paul was born in Tarsus in Cilicia. It's a province of Asia Minor. That's modern-day Turkey. And Tarsus was the capital city of Cilicia. It was large, and it was busy, and it was on one of the most important trade routes of the ancient world. It was a meeting place for those going east and west, not only by land, but by sea, because it was also at the mouth of that river, as you see, that goes out into the Mediterranean. It was a university city. Much learning took place there, and it was a city of culture. Paul would have experienced the different teachings, and he would have understood the different cultural thoughts of that time, one of them being Stoicism which holds that there is no God. And we see that Paul would be able to debate these teachings. Uh, We see that in his letters. And pay attention to that as we study this. Paul would have seen slave markets, and he would have seen Roman soldiers. And all of that becomes illustrations in his letters. 
there was a great athletic center in Tarsus. And you might recall how often Paul uses metaphors of athletes in his writing. So Paul would have known Greek, and it also tells us that he was born a Roman citizen. But in Philippians 3.5, we also know that he was born a Hebrew. He was born a Jew. And it tells us that he was from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, Benjamin was an important tribe. The tribes, we've said before, are those families that uh, were made up from the sons of Jacob. And when they came to the promised land, the tribes settled, and that became Israel. Now, in the south, there were two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And so when Israel was divided, the southern kingdom was made up of just Judah and Benjamin. So the capital... Jerusalem would have been very important to the tribe of Benjamin. Jerusalem was where the temple was. Jerusalem is the center of religious activity and religious leaders. We know that Paul's birth name was Saul. He's probably named after Saul in the Old Testament, who was the first king of Israel, and he was from the tribe of Benjamin. Philippians 3, you read that in your homework, also tells us that Paul was a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee, and the Pharisees were the strictest sect of the Jewish religion. We talk today about liberals and conservatives in Christianity. Well, the Pharisees were the most conservative of the conservatives. They held to the very letter of the law. Paul grew up with thorough home and synagogue training, and he was zealous for holiness. He tells us that. He tells us that he kept all the ceremonial requirements of the law. Now, the Pharisees of Paul's time had gotten very far away from the heart of God. We've talked about that before. They were self-righteous. They were hypocritical. They were steeped in meaningless legalism. But somehow, when you look at this young, idealistic Paul, you feel that he has this pure idea of being a Pharisee. He's misguided, but he's purely trying to seek the law. Because of the connection to Jerusalem... It's not surprising that Paul would come to Jerusalem and study under the great rabbi Gamaliel. He was the most famous rabbi of that day, and he was celebrated, called the glory of the law. Paul would have studied very rigorously the Old Testament scriptures, and he would have studied what different rabbis would have said about it. Paul was very well educated, and not only did he know Greek, but he knew Hebrew. That would have been the language of his birth. And in Acts 18.3, we learn that he was a tent maker. He had a trade. Now, tent making, they wove goat's hair into thick, heavy cloth and made tents from it. Paul's beginning was noteworthy. It was noteworthy. All of this information is noteworthy, and we're going to see it come into play later in Scripture. So let's turn to Acts 8.1, and that's where we're going to see Paul first appeared in Scripture, and he's known here as Saul. And I'm going to use those names interchangeably. Saul and Paul were the same guy. Saul, we've said, was his birth name. And he doesn't change it to Paul until Acts 13.9, and that is a Scripture on your verse sheet. And it says, Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit. Right before he started his missionary journeys, he changed his name to Paul. Now, Saul means asked for, but Paul means little one or short. 
Now, many people think that Paul was short. Historical writings tell us that he probably was very short in stature, had bowed legs, but had an athletic build. I think that Paul took the name that means little one out of humility. Out of humility. This extraordinary apostle, larger than life, he takes the name that means little one, which points to the power and the glory of Jesus. It points to what Jesus can do when someone is willing to follow him. So let's read verse 1, chapter 8. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. Now, where was Saul and whose death was he talking about? In your homework, I asked you these questions and I said we could find the answers in Acts 6 and 7. So let's just turn back to chapter 6 and I'm going to read verse 8. Now, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Stephen was a man full of God's grace. And the verses before that tell us that the disciples, the 12 disciples, picked him to be one of the original seven deacons. Now, the deacons were chosen to take on some of the physical burdens so as to free up the 12 disciples. Then in verse 10, we learn that no one could stand up against his wisdom because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And so the Jews got some people to come and lie about him. It says they stirred up the people and the elders. And so they see Stephen and they bring him before the Sanhedrin. Now we've said before Sanhedrin was that political and religious group made up of Pharisees and Sadducees. And it's possible that Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin and that he would have seen Stephen. And we read in verse 15, all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Then the high priest asked him, are these charges true? And then I asked you to read parts of chapter 7. Now this is an amazing passage. If you ever want just a quick overview of Old Testament history, of what went on with God's people in the Old Testament, read chapter 7. Because it's very accurate. And Paul would have known that it was accurate. He knew the Old Testament scriptures. He would have known what Stephen was saying was accurate. I'm going to skip all that and go to verse 51 where it says, You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through the angels, but have not obeyed it. The Sanhedrin was enraged. It says when they heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and he saw the glory of God. And it says he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Look, he said, I see heaven open, and the Son of Man is standing at the right hand of God. They were infuriated, and they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices. They pull him out. They drag him out of the city, and they begin to stone him. And we read that the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul witnessed all of that. Paul was probably a member of the Sanhedrin. He would have heard these charges against Stephen. He would have heard the truth. 
he would have known that it was accurate. And I think this scene is going to play a part in his conversion experience that we're going to read about in a second. Verse 1 goes on to say that on that day a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned him deeply. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Paul was furious. Paul thought that these followers of Jesus were misguided and that they were blaspheming against the Jewish faith. And in his zeal, in his intensity, in his all-out fashion, he pulls out all the stops to try and bring these fellow um, Christians to arrest them and probably to see them murdered as well. Now, these believers, sometimes they're called Nazarenes because they followed Jesus of Nazareth. And this was the people that the disciples had been preaching to. And the disciples had told them that they were the new and true Israel of God, that they were the people of the new covenant, bringing to fulfillment all that God had purposed and promised for his people through the Messiah. Jesus was the Messiah. This infuriates Paul. And so let's see what he does next. Verse 1 in chapter 9. Flip over to that. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters. Letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And as he neared Damascus on his journey... Suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Paul, as he goes with his letters to arrest those that follow Jesus, he meets that very Jesus on the road to Damascus. A bright light comes, and he hears the voice of Jesus. We can see that this was a dramatic revelation to Jesus, the convert to, of Jesus to Paul, that Paul's conversion was dramatic. Now, some of you might have felt like a light. That bright went off. In your head when you heard the good news of Jesus and you understood who he was for the first time. But for some of us, it happened slowly. We grew up hearing and knowing that Jesus loves us. But for Paul, this zealous man, it had to be dramatic. Paul had to be convinced. He was enraged and persistent. He would have had to hear a word from Jesus himself. Paul, who thought he was preserving the religion of the Jews, who thought he was doing a good thing for God, is stopped in his tracks, and Jesus speaks to him. His spiritual eyes are open as his physical eyes are blinded. And we read on that the men with him took him in, lead him into the city because he can't see, and for three days he sits in darkness. And I think in those three days he thought about a couple of things. One I had in your homework, we read in chapter 5 about Gamaliel. You don't have to turn over to that. But Gamaliel, his, um, 
his teacher that he respected, his rabbi, he said this when the Sanhedrin had brought the disciples before him. Let them go. Leave these men alone. For if they, their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. I think Paul must have known he was fighting against God. Those words rang true. And I think he thought about Stephen and what Stephen had said. And I think he knew that it was true, that Stephen had looked up and seen the face of God. And then we read in verse 10 that the Lord called to Ananias in a vision. Yes, Lord, he answered. And the Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done. He has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on his name. Can you imagine what it must have been like to be Ananias? Can you imagine how scary that would have been? He's probably thinking, is this a trick? I'm supposed to go to this murderous Pharisee? Lord, what are you asking of me? You know, maybe God has asked something hard of you. Maybe to let go of something or to do something that's hard or to go somewhere. Maybe you've heard him tell you to go. Maybe not in an audible voice, but through prayer and reading his word. And you know you must obey. Scripture is full of these. One illustration comes to mind in Jonah in the Old Testament. God tells him, Jonah, go to Nineveh and preach about me to those evil people. Well, Jonah, as we know, ran as fast as he could and as far as he could the other direction. And he gets to the ocean and he jumps on a boat and tries to go farther. And a storm comes and the boat's about to sink. He says, throw me into the water. And a fish swallows him and after three days spits him onto land. And Jonah decides, I better go to Nineveh. You know, I've been reading a book about Mother Teresa, and I didn't know this, but when she first went to Calcutta, for 17 years she taught in a Catholic high school. She taught middle-class girls in this Catholic girls' school, and she loved that job. She loved it. It said she was a happy nun when she was there. But one day she clearly heard God tell her, you must leave the school and go to the slums of Calcutta and take care of those people the poorest of the poor that no one loves. Take care of the lepers and the orphans and the homeless and the sick. Take care of the poorest of the poor. And Mother Teresa did that, and for the next 50 years, that's what she spent her life doing. Later, she would say that giving up teaching at that school was the greatest sacrifice that she ever made. But the voice of God was undeniable. Ananias hears Jesus say, go, and we read that he does go. And not only does he go, but he shows love to Paul. He puts his hands on Paul. He calls him his brother. He befriends him. What a transformation. Paul goes from coming to murder the followers of Jesus to becoming himself a follower of Jesus. And it happens almost in an instant. Unlike the 12 disciples who gradually come to know the truth of Jesus, Paul knows in an instant, in a flash. He comes to Damascus to persecute those preaching Jesus, and he ends up preaching Jesus is the Messiah. 
What a change. What grace we see in that. What a mighty God. Paul's conversion was dramatic. And no wonder the people were baffled and astonished and flabbergasted. And that's what we read in verses 21 and 22. He begins to go out and preach and convince them that Jesus is the Son of God. And they don't know what to make of it. And then we see that between verses 22 and verses 23, in that space, that Paul probably went to Arabia. And we get that from a verse in Galatians 1.17, and I have it on your verse sheet. It says, Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. So we see here that Paul went into Arabia. Now, we don't know exactly why. There's many theories. And I think that the best answer is that he went to enter a time of preparation. God prepares Paul for the task that he has for him, to carry his name before the Gentiles. We know that that's his task. We read about it all through Scripture. I've got two of those places on your verse sheet. Let me just read to you... um, Let's read Romans 11.13. I am talking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles. This was to be um, Paul's mission. And he goes to Arabia, and I think he goes there, to meditate and to study and to be quiet as he listens to the voice of Jesus. To talk and listen to Jesus. Maybe at this time, Jesus gave him this doctrine of the early church. Herbert Lockyer says that we can assume it was a time to reflect upon the great task before him and for shaping of the message that God had called him to deliver. Now, we don't know how long that he was in Arabia, but we know that he left there, it tells us in Galatians, and he comes back to Damascus. And probably that's what those verses are that we read, 23 and 25. It says that he's preaching to them, but... Everywhere he goes, he stirs up trouble, and so they want to kill him. His friends lower him over the wall, and he goes to Jerusalem. Now, from the time that he left Jerusalem with his letters to arrest the believers until the time that he goes back, three years have passed. And Paul goes back to Jerusalem, a very different man than the Paul that left. He left to Saul, the Pharisee with letters to murder, and he comes back preaching the very name of Jesus. You know, in Damascus, Ananias was Paul's friend. And in Jerusalem, Barnabas, the son of encouragement, is Paul's friend. Now, it might seem to you like Barnabas knew Paul. Some people think that he studied at the university in Tarsus. Maybe he did. We don't know. But what a good gift. What a gracious gift from God to give Paul a friend who would stand up for him In Jerusalem, who would vouch for him to the apostles. How hard that must have been for Paul to go back to Jerusalem. And yet God provides Barnabas. You know, God does not leave us hanging. He doesn't leave any of us hanging. He gives us friends or maybe a relative or a spouse to encourage us as we follow Jesus. Now, if some name comes to your mind as I say that, you know somebody that has encouraged you in your faith, write them a note of thanks. Tell them thank you for encouraging you in your walk. You know, we see this principle all through Scripture 
of God providing encouragement for us. I was just reminded of it this week as I looked at Moses in the Old Testament. You know, when God called Moses and said, go back and take my children out of slavery, Moses argued with God. He didn't want to go. He had a million excuses. And finally he says, I'm not even eloquent. I don't speak well. Send someone else. And so God finally says, okay, I'll send your brother Aaron with you, and he can be your mouthpiece. Who has God sent to encourage you? Who is your Barnabas? From the book of Galatians, we also read that it seems that Paul only stays in Jerusalem for 15 days. Once again, it's dangerous for him, and people want to kill him. And so his brothers in Christ take him down to the coast in Caesarea, and they send him off back home to Tarsus. And Paul might have been in Tarsus as long as 10 years. You know, it's recorded nowhere in Scripture what he did that time that he was in Tarsus. Probably, maybe, tent-making. Most assuredly, he was telling others the gospel message of Jesus. And then in Acts 11, we see Barnabas again. And the uh, apostles, the disciples in Jerusalem, send Barnabas down to Antioch, up to Antioch, which is 300 miles north of Jerusalem. And we've been talking about that in church on Sundays. Ted Kitchens has been telling us how Antioch would become the center of Christianity. It would be the headquarters for Christianity. It was shifting from Jerusalem to Antioch. So Barnabas stays on. And the work there is so great that we read chapter 11, verse 25. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. So Barnabas goes to Tarsus, and he gets his friend Saul, and he brings him back to help him with this work in Antioch. And it says that they worked there for a year. They worked there together in Antioch. And then if you'll turn over to chapter 13, verse 1, we read this. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord, they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Finally, Paul will begin his missionary journeys to the Gentile world. Now, he has probably been a believer about 14 years at this time. It's been 14 years since Paul's dramatic conversion. His preparation has been long, but Paul has been patient. He's commissioned to begin his first missionary journey, and Barnabas is commissioned with him. Now, it may have seemed like a long time to Paul, but I think Paul knew that his commission was given in God's right time. It was given in God's right time by the Holy Spirit. Now, as we have studied this background of Paul, we look and see how God uses all these different things in Paul's life. All these experiences from his studies and from his upbringing. And we're going to see that in the weeks to follow. There are many things that we can learn from Paul. 
so many applications for our lives, and I hope that you found some applications and are applying them to your life. One application jumped out at me, and that is as followers of Jesus, we must be patient, just like Paul was patient, with our spiritual formation. We must be patient with our spiritual formation. Now, spiritual formation is the transformation of the person into one of greater Christ-likeness. That is what following Jesus is all about. It's becoming more like him. It's becoming more Christ-like. And that takes time. It's a journey. Amy Carmichael called it, it's a climb. And we journey on, and we never totally achieve perfection until we're on the other side with Jesus. But we journey on, and we are patient with our spiritual transformation. I think from studying Paul, we can know that God, in his time, will use all our experiences for his good, for his glory, for his work. Nothing is wasted. Nothing is wasted, ladies. You know, I met a gal at the laundromat about a year ago. She was older. She was retired. And she had a big quilt. She was going to wash it in one of those big washing machines there. And she began to tell me how she had quilted all her life, and she loved it. And as she retired, she began to pray and think, what can I do with this quilting? So she went to a church, and she gathered up a bunch of women that liked quilting, and they started a quilting bee. And even women that wanted to learn to quilt started to come, and they began to quilt and quilt. And they made quilts that they sent to missionaries or to needy families. You know, we also learned from Amy Carmichael. Many of you know her. She is the missionary that went to India in the late 1800s. She had a ministry to the little Indian girls who were used as temple prostitutes. And she would go in and rescue them. Now, when Amy Carmichael was a little girl, y'all have probably heard this story, she loved the color blue, but her eyes were brown. She knew that God answered prayer, and so one night she prayed, Lord, give me brown eyes, I mean blue eyes. Change my brown eyes to blue eyes. So she went to bed, totally confident, woke up the next morning, looking in the mirror, and alas, her eyes were still brown. Amy Carmichael tells us that at that time she learned that God does answer prayer, but sometimes he says no. Later on, she would know why he said no. One night, they were going to go into this temple, and so they were dressed up as Indian women, the other Indian women with her, and they put a sari on Amy, and they dyed her face and her arms brown from berries. And when she was finished and looked into the mirror, she looked just like an Indian woman because her eyes were brown. And she knew that if she had had blue eyes, she could not have passed as an Indian woman. Nothing is wasted, not even the physical bodies that God gives us. You know, if you are thinking that you want to do something for the Lord and nothing seems to be coming your way, nothing seems to be working out, I just want to say be patient with him. Be patient, spend time with him, praying and reading his word. And wait and listen. Some of you may be involved in great ministries right now and are going to go on to do other great ministries. Some of you are still waiting for that niche that you can serve God. Be patient because God is not finished with you yet. We know that in two scriptures. Philippians 1.6 says, Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And then in my new favorite Psalm, 138, verse 8 says, 
the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not abandon the works of your hands. Heavenly Father, you are such a mighty, mighty God. And Father, your plans are so different from what we might think. Lord, who would have thought in that day that Paul, Paul, the Pharisee of Pharisees, would come to know you in a saving way, would go out to tell the Gentile world the gospel message, that we can be here today as believers, praising your name. Father, I know that you have great work for each of us. Lord, we want to follow you. We want to become more like Jesus. We want to become more Christ-like. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to work in us a great spiritual formation. I pray, Lord, that we would be patient, that we would spend time with you and read the word, talk to you and listen to you. And Father, I know that nothing that's in our lives is wasted because it tells us that you love us. And I ask all these things and pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.